Welcome to today's Navigating the Cancer Maze, coming to you from Singapore, where I've recently had surgery to replace a neurostimulating device that allows me to have normal colon function. And today we're going to be talking about pelvic floor and colorectal surgery. I'll be interviewing surgeons Dr. Lim Jit Fong and Dr. Francis Xia Chun, who's a previous guest on Navigating the Cancer Maze. Both guests are specialists in colorectal issues. First of all, I'll interview Dr. Lim for the first three sessions of the show today, and during the fourth session, I'll introduce Dr. Francis Xia Chun, whose interview will be continued in full next week on the show. Make sure you don't miss that. Now, we'll talk about Dr. Lim's qualifications first. He graduated from the National University of Singapore in 1995, obtaining his fellowship in surgery from the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow in 1999. He has a strong interest in minimally invasive colorectal surgery and is adept at laparoscopic keyhole colorectal surgery, including single incision colorectal surgery. He's also one of the few surgeons in Singapore accredited to do robotic colorectal surgery. Dr. Lim is an expert in the management of patients with functional defecation problems such as faecal incontinence and obstructed defecation syndrome. For patients who are suffering from these complex functional disorders of the pelvic floor, Dr. Lim provides a holistic and multidisciplinary clinical service. He is working at the Fortis Surgical Hospital in Singapore. Dr. Francis Sao Chun is himself a medical miracle. Some of you may remember on the show as a seven-year-old, he recovered from major surgery for a cancer in his small intestine after facing a horrendous six months of radiation treatment and chemotherapy back in 1964 when treatments were harsh indeed. Obviously, he survived, and Dr. Xia Chun graduated from the National University of Singapore in 1981 and obtained his higher surgical qualifications in 1987. Subspecialising in colorectal surgery in 1989, he worked with the world-class surgeons of St. Mark's Hospital in London. Dr. Xia Chun then returned to Singapore and helped establish the first colorectal surgery department in Asia at the Singapore General Hospital. He is leading the development of colorectal surgery in Asia and conducts trainings globally. As an expert in his field, he's frequently consulted by surgeons from all over the world with regard to the best method of handling difficult colorectal cases. His other passion is as an entomologist with a love of stick insects, and he's well published on the subject. He also operates at Fortis Surgical Hospital in Singapore. So first we're going to go to Dr Lim and we're going to hear um, about his experience in working with patients with colorectal surgery. Welcome to the show, Dr Lim Jit Fong. Thank you for having me, Grace. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, you have a steadfast principle I've read in your practice of medicine. You say, make decisions for your patients as if they're your loved ones. If your decision is not good enough for your loved one, it's not good enough for your patient. I really like that. But do you find this a challenging way to practice in modern, technologically focused medical world that's often seen by patients as being disconnected from the, um, the uh, people arena? How do you work with that? I think that in such a scenario uh, as we are today, as you have mentioned, uh, it is very 
technologically focused today and people tend to get uh, disconnected because there is less of a human touch. Mm. However, medicine has always been about two persons, the doctor and the patient. That hasn't changed, that must never change and if you believe in something, it doesn't become difficult. It's not. I don't find it challenging in any way. In fact, I find it a joy to be able to do that despite the environment that we live in. Mm, it's really great. I'm sure um, your patients would benefit greatly from that attitude. And that reflects through too into yourself as a doctor who sees educating the public about health is very important. Can you describe some of the topics that you take to that public arena as well as why you are so passionate to educate? I think in healthcare, it was never really about doctors versus patients. It's about doctors and patients coming together on a journey towards health. And the health isn't always just about the patient, it's about health for all. Uh, because the patient is a member of the community. And if a member of the community is unwell, the community themselves are affected. When we educate the public, it is because we are trying to get more patients to understand their disorders um, and to get them on our side so that we know how to help them better. Sometimes doctors don't necessarily know what the patients want the most or need the most. Um, we have what we have from our experience and from what the books teach us, but what the patients teach us may be very different. Um, I tend to stick to the topics when I talk about, when I, I tend to st speak to about topics that I'm familiar with and obviously I'm most passionate about my own specialty, mm -hmm. dealing with patients with bowel problems and this range from simple things like uh, just constipation, uh, which in some can be easy, to others may be um, a lifelong problem, uh, all the way to cancer. Because uh, for us in Singapore especially, uh, colorectal cancer is the most common cancer afflicting our population. Mm. And the cancer doesn't get that one person. The cancer gets into the whole family and the wider network of the community. Mm. So I find that it's very important to get everyone on our side working together because many minds can come up with many ideas. Mm. That's terrific. Um, you mentioned your speciality in patients with functional defecatory problems, faecal incontinence, obstructed defecation. I've just had my third successful surgery here, and um, it's been with you at the Fortis Surgical Hospital here in Singapore. So today I'd like to base our discussion, or at least for the moment anyway, around um, these issues. So to begin with, the pelvic floor. Can you describe the function of the pelvic floor and what happens when in that area things go very wrong for the patient? I guess uh, to begin with, um, it's difficult to find a simple analogy of what the pelvic floor is. But as the term describes, it's uh, a sheet of muscle um, which actually supports um, the pelvic organs. And this sheet of muscle is attached to your pelvic bone all the way from the front in a circular manner all the way to the back where your tailbone is. Now, if you imagine if you put two hands up, palm face up, side by side together, you now have your pelvic floor muscle. What it supports in front where your fingers are would be your bladder. Mm -hmm. In the middle, just in the middle of the palm, that would be the 
your womb, the uterus. In a man, it will be the prostate. Um, for everyone else, right at the back, we have the rectum. Mm-hmm. All right. So now these three organs are the three organs of the pelvis itself. And when you have this muscle sheet supporting them uh, in place, imagine what would happen if somebody were to relax that, that pair of hands. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, the support of those organs are no longer there, or at least they are weaker than they should be. Now, what can happen? Now, all three organs can be affected when that muscle or the pelvic floor itself doesn't work well. If the floor is um, weak and it won't support the organs, the bladder can droop, so can the uterus or the vagina, and similarly with the rectum. And when they droop, they may lead to a problem of a failure to control incontinence, or they may lead to a failure to evacuate, such as uh, in painful bladder syndrome, or patients with bowel problems or constipation and obstructive defecation. On the other extreme, some people can't, that, that pelvic floor muscle is now too tight, and the person is unable to relax it appropriately. It also can lead to problems. Um, there is a variety of clinical presentation, but that I guess that depends on uh, the organ that is the most uh, at risk at that point in time for the individual. Plus, maybe there are other lifestyle issues that come with it. For example, a 20-year-old young man um, may not have a problem if the muscle is a bit tight because he knows how to strain hard enough to overcome that tightness. But the same cannot be said for an 80-year-old man if he has the tightness problem. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have the ability to overcome it. Um, A lady with frequent... Uh, urine infection may not realize that problem is due to the muscle weakness and they might think that it is a kidney problem uh, when it's completely unrelated so there are va- there's a varying presentation that we see today it's difficult to give you uh, a simple uh, description of all the symptoms but underneath all this the baseline problem is that if that muscle doesn't work in its usual manner meaning if it doesn't want to contract when it's supposed to contract and if it doesn't want to relax when it's supposed to relax you're going to get problems in evacuation mainly of your bladder and your bowel Mm -hmm. it's a great explanation I haven't put the next question on our list but it's one I'm sure you'll be able to answer easily Um, obviously because of the relationship with as you said the bladder uh, the uterus, the prostate, the anus, etc., etc. It's very important then to have a multidisciplinary team, and I believe that's what you do here at Forte Surgical Hospital. That you bring in various people um, as a part of a multidisciplinary team to deal with these problems, particularly surgically. Can you uh, speak to that? You're quite right in that point. Uh, when I brought up that there are three separate organs. Um, Traditionally, medicine is taught to doctors by the organ systems. So for the bladder, we have the urologist. For the womb, um, the vagina and the uterus, we have the gynecologist. Mm -hmm. And for the rectum and the anus, you have the colorectal surgeons. But uh, over the last two decades or so, as we've now started to understand the pelvic floor's function better, uh, many doctors have now cross-trained uh, or have collaborated in groups among these three specialties because we can't really treat the pelvic floor problem from only one particular angle. 
we need to approach the problem as a whole mm-hmm. and often um, we have to do that as a group and I started uh, with a pelvic floor disorder group combining a urologist, a gynecologist and corrective surgeon uh, back in the year 2006 when um, I was back in the Singapore General Hospital um, as I have moved on in my career uh, that part however hasn't changed because we've realised that that multidisciplinary approach is paramount to the patient's outcome mm-hmm. uh, without which sometimes a colorectal surgeon fails to appreciate some of the problems or the options available uh, that comes from treatment of the bladder and I guess vice versa mm-hmm. So we've talked about uh, some of the causes of uh, pelvic floor dysfunction in, in terms of the loss of the function but what is it that people do? For instance, is it because uh, women having babies? Uh, um, is it riding bicycles? What are the sorts of things we can do to our pelvic floor that can create these problems? Things in everyday life. I, I wish there was a short, simple answer to that, but I guess as in all things in life, things get complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but the that function of the pelvic floor can go haywire for many, many reasons. Um, for example, because it is primarily a layer of muscle, um, it could be from diseases of the muscle, diseases of the nerves that affect the muscle, or uh, it could be from some trauma to the muscles, such as due to, uh, such as surgery in the uh, pelvic region, or trauma from childbirth. Mm-hmm. Now, the commonest causes of uh, described for incontinence today as well as uh, late onset constipation will be um, sudden or rapid increase in weight uh, where obesity uh, stretches the pelvic floor the increased weight therefore doesn't allow the muscles to regain their normal function Uh, the second would be childbirth related trauma of course childbirth is a beautiful thing and not every woman who undergoes childbirth will develop a problem. However, we do know that um, not all uh, childbirths will happen in a smooth manner, and that's when we run into trouble. Mm-hmm. Okay, great answer. Thank you for that. We're going to be back shortly on Navigating the Cancer Maze. We're taking a break now. We'll be back with Dr. Lim Jit Fong here in Singapore talking about the pelvic floor. We're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Gore, here today with uh, Dr. Lim Jit Fong in Singapore. Uh, We were talking about pelvic floor and causes of pelvic floor dysfunction before the break. What are the early warning signs that pelvic floor function may be compromised? Because we know if we can catch everything early, there's a much better chance of repairing and restoration. Well, thankfully today there are some early warning signs um, for both the bladder and bowel problems. Um, and the first one that most patients will describe is a sense of urgency, um, meaning they can't hold back that urge to go to the toilet. Mm-hmm. Um, when in the past, a person could uh, hold the sensation for about, uh, to, to pass urine, for example, if they could hold it for five minutes, now they need to run to find a toilet within a minute. Even though they haven't leaked, that is a precursor to the leak. Um, the same happens for patients with bowel incontinence. If they find that there is a great urgency, then there is a problem. 
What about the other extreme for patients with uh, bladder outlet problems or uh, obstructed defecation? Then it's a problem of them completing the act of either micturition, passage of their urine, or defecation. Uh, meaning if they find that they have to strain hard or they have to go a few times to finish uh, going the toilet episode, then that tells you that they are starting to develop a problem with um, letting go. So be it the bladder or the bowel, um, that's the early sign. Um, we also find that patients who have uh, early symptoms of um, rec- uh, this vaginal prolapse, uh, they may feel a sense of fullness deep in the pelvis, if they were to jump, they almost feel as if there's a ball that's trying to drop out. And, but they don't manifest clinically any of the signs of um, a pelvic floor dysfunction yet. Mm-hmm. Yet at this point in time of their history, if we were to assess them, we can detect the early changes of the pelvic floor disorder. And quite rightly, as you have said, if we were to intervene at this point in time or intercept the disorder now, we can uh, either delay the process uh, or even reverse it. Mm-hmm. So what forms of testing uh, would you do with someone like that if they came in an early stage? Um, a lot of t- the tests today uh, are done in order for us to detect how the bladder um, or bowel functions normally. So it involves us putting them through uh, either uh, manometry tests, which are pressure studies, um, looking at nerve conduction studies, as well as a component with a radiological study, be it um, using X-ray or MRI, mm-hmm. to detect how the pelvic floor moves during the act of um, passage of urine or bowel movement, or even just straining down. Um, the good thing is none of these tests are invasive, they're easy to do, and most of them are done in the doctor's clinics. Mm, that's good, and I can vouch for that myself, having uh, had those kinds of procedures, they're very non-invasive. Um, if someone suspects they have a problem, then what should they do? Um, are GPs very familiar with the, these kind of approaches, or should they seek the advice of a specialist first up? I think um, a GP is always a good first stop because your general practitioner will probably know your medical conditions as a whole better than the specialists. And he may be able to put you in touch with the more appropriate specialists for your condition. Mm -hmm. Of course, saying that, um, depending on uh, where you are uh, in the world, um, the healthcare system may be different. in some countries, you may have the direct access to the specialists. Um, in some, you don't. Um, in Singapore, for example, the patients may choose to go to the GPs first or come to the specialists. But what I found that wherever you are in the world, um, your specialist will want to speak to your GP um, in order to find out more about your condition so that the uh, treatment given to you is appropriate for you because every one of us is unique. Mm. So the message is, don't suffer in silence. (laughs) Yes, yes. It is not a disorder to suffer in silence for. Nobody is a hero for suffering with this. And there are many treatments available today for pelvic floor disorders. And it is a big impact into well-being and ongoing medical history if people don't do an intervention early, isn't it? Yes, yes. Um, In many patients with pelvic floor disorders... 
um, if they do not get it treated, um, they withdraw from society, they withdraw from the community around mm. them, and if they were to have any other medical conditions, they also fail to seek medical treatment, and it then may then deteriorate into a situation where other medical problems arise or, or are magnified due to the presence of this pelvic floor disorder. Mm. Yeah, very true. Um, can we talk now about Medtronic and Interstim devices, something that's close to my heart, or should I say close to my bottom? <laughs> um, how do they work? Does anyone really know yet? And how have they impacted the treatment of pelvic floor disorders? Uh, Medtronic has a long history of uh, dealing with medical implants, primarily with uh, neural stimulation. Um, and uh, this interstim is well, the proprietary name of the device, but the technology uh, or the technique is uh, termed neuromodulation. Neuromodulation is used in treatment for deep brain stimulation in patients with uh, Parkinson's disease. Neuromodulation is also used to um, change the way our spinal nerves behave in terms of pain relief for patients with chronic pain, for example, those after severe uh, spinal trauma. And we use it as well for uh, control of the bladder and bowel function. Of course, the most widely used neurostimulator that you know today is the cardiac pacemaker to keep the ticker going. Uh, so interstim... Uh, is the only uh, version or at least the only neurostimulator available in the market today when it comes to stimulation of the pelvic floor. Uh, we term it sacral neuromodulation. Uh, the name was called sacral neuromodulation because we feel that we are not directly stimulating a nerve to contract or relax the muscle. Rather, we are changing the behavior of the nerves by changing um, an autonomic nerve system which is the nerve system which controls the basic functions of our body uh, without our conscious control mm. for example your breathing pattern and your heart rate is controlled through uh, autonomic nerve system similarly the way our bowels and our bladder functions isn't truly completely under our conscious control the neuromodulation changes the behavior of those nerves to restore the previous functions that were there but they may have deteriorated with time due to any number of reasons mm -hmm. and by altering, altering the behavior of these nerves we've noticed that we can restore a lot of the functions to the way it used to be and many patients will describe the, that they feel as if the pelvis is reacting the way it used to 10 or 20 years back right um, let's talk further about uh, this and I'm just interested to know, this, this actually isn't one of the questions, I'm interested to know why the neurostimulator, why the sacroneuromodulation will work for this, the opposite conditions. Has anyone studied this? Um, the study about uh, the science behind neuromodulation, because it acts on the autonomic nerve system. Mm it sort of brings the extremes back to the center, the right. normal range. Okay. Um, in both conditions, there are actually overlapping uh, pathologies. 
um, and a lot of it has to do with how the colon and the rectum senses the content and how it chooses to push the content through to the anus. Um, what we discover about the anus is that it's just the trap door below the pelvic floor. So we need to to control everything above that part first before we even head to the trap door. And in patients with both extremes, be it incontinence or uh, outlet obstruction, getting the content down there is part of the pathology. And by changing the way the nerves behave, we are now getting all the content to go down in a consistent timing. For example, we're talking about bowel incontinence and constipation. We find that by using the neuromodulator, we can get the patient's colon and the whole bowel to behave in a manner which will be more like a normal person, where the contents move in a consistent manner to the pelvic floor. Mm -hmm. That's why it works on both extremes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about restoration of the original pelvic floor function. And uh, before in our break, we were having a chat about this, that you said that people who have had continence problems um, you know, incontinence can finish up with the opposite problem and there's a psychological impact that's in there. Could you speak to that? Um, today, we believe that um, a lot of our... While I did say earlier that there are there is this autonomic nerve system which controls certain bodily functions um, at the background which is not under our conscious control, we do know that if we were to be able to change the psychology of a patient, we can alter the way these baseline functions can work. Mm. For example, you can use hypnotherapy to treat a patient to stop an addiction. While we think that many of the addiction problems are actually a response to certain chemicals, it is interesting that by altering the way the brain behaves, we can overcome this conscious control. Um, similarly, uh, in a lot of disorders of the pelvic floor, whether uh, we found that psychology is a significant component, both in the pathology and therefore in the treatment. Mm. Um, some patients with psychological problems may manifest the pelvic floor disorders as a way of projecting their psychological disorders. Others have psychological disorders due to this um, and we don't know whether there's a group of patients who actually primarily have a psychological problem once we treated the physical manifestation they needed a new manifestation um, in order for them to manifest their psychological disorder again right. I know I'm going around a little bit but honestly that is where we think it may be of course there is another issue where uh, the psychology is secondary to the to the pelvic floor condition, and we can change the behavior of the brain in order for them to control the pelvic floor better. It's mm. really really interesting. We'll be back shortly on navigating the cancer maze and continue our discussion about um, colorectal issues and pelvic floor. Don't go away. We're back on navigating the cancer maze, talking today about the pelvic floor with Dr. Lim Jit Fong in Singapore. If you've just tuned in, do remember to listen to the rest of the show if that's the case because you've missed a lot. Um, I'd like to talk about cancer patients now, in particular people who have had radiation surgery, um, trans-chemoembolisation, um, all kinds of treatments, and they may be through their cancer, 
but they've lost function because of it. Um, the interstim devices, are they being used in this group of patients to help them regain function and normality if they've, uh, say, got dysfunction of their rectum or bladder or nerve damage from any of those therapies? Um, it's a good question, and actually it's been used um, quite widely um, in treatment of patients with pelvic floor disorders after pelvic surgery. Um, it's nothing, not something that is new. It's been used in treatment for both uh, patients with uh, bladder, prostate cancer, as well as rectal cancer, for example. Um, and really, when surgery has been done, surgery is fairly destructive um, because it involves removal of a disease together with the surrounding normal parts of an organ. And mm. with that, once you remove the normal, we cannot expect the function to return to the baseline it was before treatment. However, we can teach patients to cope, beyond which if their body is unable to cope completely, then often interstim or any other treatments uh, related to their condition can come in. Um, interstim is useful, is uh, preferred by many doctors simply because it is a very uh, minimally invasive technique. We can do the treatment without approaching the area which was operated on before, thereby uh, preventing the patient from having to have complications related to repeat surgery mm -hmm. in a previously operated area. And that a lot of times the pelvic floor function um, can be controlled by the nurse and by restoring the previous nerve functions which have been lost after the treatment for their cancers. So have there been big studies on this? I guess the answer is no. There have been many case reports about successful treatment simply because it is not that common to find um, a patient uh, with a functional problem of the pelvic floor after the treatment of a cancer uh, that is severe enough to cause them a significant loss in their quality of life. Mm -hmm. um, many of them cope quite well, and we don't always need interstim. There are many options available. But for those who don't cope well or have a pathology that requires some neuromodulation, then the interstim is superior to the other techniques. Um, we've even done it for patients who've had uh, rectal cancer, and they have lost uh, control of the anus where mm. they have a combination of incontinence plus severe constipation because they can't evacuate and by implanting the interstim nerves to modulate the way the pelvic floor and the remnant colon behaves we can get them back to I wouldn't say normal but an acceptable bowel habit and there's no contraindications if someone still has an active cancer for instance um, would that be contraindicated for them? Do they need to get through the cancer experience and be given the all clear to have one of those devices? I think as of today, uh, in most countries, the usage of uh, the interstim is regulated by uh, government bodies and therefore, for now, there are no uh, approved... Uh, there are no countries that approve the use of interstim in patients with, uh, who are undergoing active treatment for cancer. Mm -hmm. 
there is no restriction on the use of this device in treatment for patients who are in the remission phase of their cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. um, but moving forward, uh, we are also needing to balance the benefit of this intestine against the longevity of the patient because uh, we do not want to use a treatment uh, for a patient who may de not derive dramatic benefit mm. if their expected lifespan is going to be very short. Sure. Thank you. That's been um, very clear, your explanation there. I'd like to move into advice that you may have regarding diet, and I guess particularly fibre um, is one of the things for anyone with pelvic floor dysfunction. It seems that too little or too much is a problem. Um, what, what's your view on the dietary aspect in, in pelvic floor function and straining and constipation, etc.? I guess uh, diet plays a significant role when we're talking about patients with bowel problems. So I'm just going to focus on that and ignore the mm -hmm. part about bladder incontinence. Yeah. Um, if somebody has either bowel incontinence or obstructive defecation, then the food that they eat and therefore the formation of the stools forms a significant factor in how we can manage their problem. In patients with incontinence, what we try to do is to run through with the patient their diet to identify certain food irritants specific to that patient mm -hmm. and we have to teach them to avoid them. Uh, while it might sound very simple, uh, most people do not know all their food irritants until you sit down with them and run through the different foods that they've taken in their life. Mm -hmm. um, so it's quite a tedious process, but it's something that is worthwhile doing. Similarly, patients with constipation, we have to go through with them about timing of the diet because we can um, alter the baseline cycle of when the colon wants to have a movement by altering the diet somehow. Um, and we're not talking about medication to add on to your diet to make you have a bowel movement. We're talking about changing what you eat mm -hmm. as well as the timing of your food and drinks in order to enhance a normal sensation of an urge to defecate. You brought up the issue of fiber. Um, fiber on its own um, has been used too widely as a term because when we talk about fiber, we are talking about actually many different things. Nobody eats fiber. People eat fruits, vegetables, mushrooms, but they don't eat the fiber. So the fiber is merely a byproduct of the food that we eat. And what we are talking about is the indigestible fiber, uh, which then becomes uh, what is known as the roughage of your stools. Now this roughage has a can serve a function and a role because it helps us trap water so that the stools stay softer. Um, if you do not have that fiber, uh, indigestible fiber in your diet, the problem is that some people get watery diarrhea because they can't form the shape of the stool. Mm -hmm. Whereas others will get hard, constipated stools because there isn't any water trapped in it. So I use the analogy of a sponge. Um, so if you have uh, a lot of fiber with no water, what you're gonna get is a dry sponge. If you get enough uh, a fiber into you with good amount of water, you're going to get a soft sponge, but the problem is it becomes heavy. 
then we have to consider the effect of the weight on how well the colon can contract. Mm, so, in that's sh- a good point. so in short, I can't really give you a simple answer whether fiber is good or bad for a person. And in fact, in my practice, we actually have to run through the amount of fiber the person takes in a day and to see whether that is too much or too little based on their natural history. Some patients need uh, a lot of fiber in order to have a normal bowel movement. But if they have the fiber, they do not need any other medication or any other therapy in order for them to have a normal bowel movement. Mm. Whereas the same amount in a different patient might induce severe constipation, bloating, and pain. So trying to find that correct amount for each patient is the challenge. Uh, I wish that I could have given you a better answer than that, but really there is no easy answer for that question. Mm. It's very personalized, isn't it? Yes. Mm. Um, just one other question I'd like to add in, because I believe you're um, an expert in the area of minimally invasive surgery. Um, so this is not one of our questions that's listed, but I'd like to ask uh, your view on the use of this minimally invasive surgery, particularly for colectomies. And you know, we used to have very big incisions for all of these things, and, and now we don't. So for anybody who's listening to the show today, maybe facing such a surgery, could you talk about the, this minimally invasive surgery? And uh, are you using the Da Vinci uh, robotic surgery as well? Um, okay. Um Firstly, about the, the minimally invasive surgery, the term just means uh, to ask us to use smaller incisions but to achieve an equivalent surgery on the inside with the primary aim of enhancing the recovery of the patients uh, and minimize their complications at the same time. The Da Vinci robotic surgery system is just one of the methods of minimally invasive surgery uh, its use is getting more and more popular, more popular with patients because it may be seen to be an advanced uh, technique. It's popular with doctors uh, because uh, the technique allows us to do certain maneuvers that other minimally invasive equipment do not allow us to do mm-hmm. and thereby widen our repertoire during surgery. And uh, of course, it isn't always suitable for every patient, but it is one of the options. Minimally invasive, I would say, in short today, is the way to go because the surgery that's actually done on the inside is exactly the same. It's just that we do it with fewer holes, fewer smaller wounds, and thereby allowing patients who would have been at risk of significant complication from a long uh, uh, midline uh, incision with a big wound and a protracted recovery and we can convert them um, to a fairly straightforward recovery meaning a 90 year old patient undergoing a, a minimally invasive surgery will probably recover in a similar manner to a 30 year old person whereas the same cannot be said if you were to use the conventional old open approach mm-hmm. yet on the inside everything is done in an equivalent manner mm-hmm. So that's a good reframe, actually, for people who have uh, seen the old method and uh, wanting to know about the new one. We'll be back just for a few minutes uh, to finish up. Uh, Don't go away. We're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze, just briefly finishing off our discussion today with Dr. Lim Jitfong in uh, Singapore. 
So is there anything you'd like to add to today's discussion that we haven't covered already, or do you have any message for patients who are listening to the show today? Well, Grace, I must admit that uh, you have been very thorough in grilling me through uh, (laughs) the entire spectrum of dealing with pelvic floor disorders. Uh, I guess uh, the one thing I would like to add at the end is how doctors dealing with pelvic floor disorders tend to approach pelvic floor disorders. And that is that we believe that the bowel problems or the bladder problems, while they do not kill you, they do take away your life. Just being alive is not the same as living a life. And we feel that it is important for a person to have their normal function in order to live their life fully. And just that alone is that small step that we uh, in our specialty can provide to our patients in making their lives better. Thank you very much for having me on your program and I hope that uh, your listeners will have learned a lot from this and can get a lot of hope to go and get themselves treated if they have these problems. Thank you very much and it's a double thank you from me because I've been here in Singapore um, to be at the surgical skill at your hands in um, having my um, sacroneuromodulation unit replaced so I can attest to everything that's been talked about in this show. So thank you very much both ways for the show and for giving me my life back. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you very much. Bye for now.